thank you all for tuning into the Federalist Files. I greatly appreciate it. We are on Federalist number 38. It's titled The Same Subject Continued and the Incoherence of the Objections to the New Plan Exposed, written by James Madison, January 12th, uh, 1788. Topics include need for the power to be in many hands rather than the few and the incompetence of the Articles of Confederation in comparison to the Constitution. I think I'm going to title this one The Incoherence of the Objections myself. I might actually title it that on um, on Rumble when I put it up. Uh, Madison, through this one, he pretty much he goes through, he begins with the idea that the convention was something that usually when it came to forming a government, it was up to one man to do so. And the convention was kind of an anomaly because... Many men were were creating the proposed constitution and creating the new government that that was to be uh, put in place. And then he goes on, he explains a little bit about uh, the Greek republics. I don't really want to go much into that just because this one is so verbose. He goes, he starts to talk about all of the objections from his dissenters and it's just quote after quote. And then at the very end, he kind of he compares their objections to the current Articles of Confederation, which has no answer for the objections to begin with and is actually um, less cohesive, what is it, coherent or less comprehensive, obviously, than the proposed Constitution. And it also breaks a lot of the rules that his object the objectors were referring to. So I'm just going to start this one here. Madison states, uh, he starts this paper... And I quote, it is not a little remarkable that in every case reported by ancient history in which government has been established with deliberation and consent, the task of framing it has not been committed to an assembly of men, but has been performed by some individual citizen of preeminent wisdom and approved integrity, end quote. So once again, it was not a convention of men usually when it came to establishing a government. It was usually just one person. Uh, I've, I've cited the example before of George Washington when he had all of the power in his hands and he decided to give, uh, the power back to the people. And then, you know, King George said, if that's true, he's the greatest man to ever live. It's similar to that. Usually when somebody has all the power in their hands like that, they will now deliberate and they will create their own country or their own set government. A lot of the time it ends up being a monarchy. And instead, in this scenario, it was a republic created by a convention that was supposed to be representative of the people themselves. So then he goes on and he explains a couple of these these different Greek scenarios and how they did it by the um, by just the one person setting in place the government. It states he states, and I quote: "The proceedings under Lycurgus." Uh, were less regular, but as far as the advocates for regular reform could prevail, they all turned their eyes toward the single efforts of that celebrated patriot and sage instead of seeking to bring about a revolution by the intervention of a deliberative body of citizens. So I think when he says Lysurgis, he's talking about Athens, I think. Uh, Madison also gives other examples such as Draco in Athens, Minos in Crete, and Romulus in Rome. So he goes through the Greek Republic as well as the Roman Republic. And then he goes on, he states, and I quote, If these lessons teach us on one hand to admire the improvement made by America on the ancient mode of preparing and establishing regular plans of government, they serve not less on the other to admonish us to, of the hazards and difficulties 
incident to such experiments and of the great imprudence of unnecessarily multiplying them, end quote. So he said, if you should learn anything from, from these ancient models is that they're not careful in prudence. They're, they're not careful and they, there's a lot of, um, there's just problems with this system because then you have to kind of run by the whim of one person. So then he goes on and I quote, it is, is it an unreasonable conjecture that the errors which may be contained in the plan of the convention are such as have resulted rather from the defect of antecedent uh, experience on this complicated and difficult subject than what a want of accuracy or care in the investigation of it and consequently such as will not be ascertained until an actual trial shall have pointed them out so he what's very interesting about here he's kind of out like i said james madison's is not as straightforward and i've realized this now after reading through it and i actually liked madison at first more than hamilton just because madison stands a little bit differently in his approach to personal rights and um and civil liberties but he is very cryptic in his messaging here i think what he's saying is that the conjecture the unreasonable conjecture from his dissenters he's saying yeah there may be errors in this proposed plan that may be defective or or certain parts or certain aspects but then he also goes as will not be ascertained until an actual trial shall have appointed them out so these are things that are consequent consequently all of the objections that have been made, he thinks are not valid, really. And he says, yeah, there may be actual problems, but that's what the court system's for, to hash out these problems. And instead of sitting here looking for the perfect proposal and waiting years on years to figure it out, right now we have something that's actually been confirmed, and now all it needs to do is be voted on by the individual states. And, and every other thing will just hash out in court. So then he goes on. And I quote, this conjecture is rendered probable not only by many considerations of a general nature, but by the particular case of the Articles of, of Confederation. It is observable that among the numerous objections and amendments suggested by the several states, when these articles were submitted for their ratification, <clears throat> not one is found which alludes to the great and radical error which on actual trial has discovered itself. <laughs> Not one is what's very interesting about this. He says, not one has been found of all the objections. Not one of them has been found that alludes to the great and radical error, which on actual tri trial has discovered itself. So he, that's, that's exactly what I was saying before is these objections to him are not like legitimate objections. And then he's also talking about the articles of confederation. Um, the Articles of Confederation don't really have a court system to set up. I think he's also kind of alluding to that, too. It's like, yeah, all these errors and stuff, we really have not been able to hash it out in a court system anyway. So what are you guys even talking about, kind of? And then he's also, but he's saying that the proposed Constitution has its own trial system, has its own judiciary that can interpret the laws, and we'll be able to figure it out from there. At least it sets a standard, whereas the Articles of Confederation doesn't really set any standard. And no matter what kind of complaints you have, or amendments that you want to the Constitution or to the Articles of Confederation is just not going to happen. 
So then he goes on, and I quote, And if we accept the observations which New Jersey was led to make rather by her local situation than by her peculiar foresight, it may be questioned whether a single suggestion was of sufficient moment to justify a revision of the system. There is abundant reason, nevertheless, to suppose that immaterial as these objections were, they would have been adhered to with a very dangerous inflexibility in some states, had not a zeal for their opinions and supposed interests have been stifled by the more powerful sentiment of self-preservation, end quote. So here what he's saying, he's talking about New Jersey in particular. I guess there was some sort of observation, there was some sort of issue where New Jersey wanted to change the federal law to better benefit them, and it only was them in particular for their local situation. And if it weren't for the zeal and the opinions of the interests of the other states that were around New Jersey... They would have, um, for the reasoning of self-preservation, then you would have had New Jersey prevail where New Jersey was now making the law federally for everyone in the country, even if there was an agreement uh, upon that law. Just because, once again, there really was not that high of a standard in instilling new policies or court decisions. It was a very rudimentary system that they set up at first with the Articles of Confederation. It was very flawed. So Madison uses an analogy to further explain this. This is very interesting, the way that he says it. Talking about, um, the way he's explaining it is, you can't have one person make all the decisions for the government. It needs to be in the hands of many. He states, and I quote, A patient who finds his disorder daily growing worse, and that an efficacious remedy can no longer be delayed without extreme danger after coolly revolving this situation in the characters of different physicians, selects and calls in such of them as he judges most capable of administering relief and best entitled to his confidence. The physicians attend, the case of the patient is carefully examined, a consult consultation is held. They are unanimously agreed that the symptoms are critical, but that the case with proper and timely relief is so far from being desperate that it may be made to issue an improvement of his constitution, end quote. So he's saying that, this, that we need a system where many people, kind of doctor, you know, many doctors are going to be there to figure it out. And in their case, it's really many statesmen that represent the people are there to figure it out and issue some sort of improvement or a new creation of uh, the constitution. They are unanimously agreed that the symptoms are critical here. So, um, yeah, so then Madison, he next he asks the rhetorical question, why one individual rather than a deliberate body of citizens? And then he goes on, he answers it, obviously. He states, and I quote, The fears of discord and disunion among a number of counselors exceeded the apprehension of treachery or incapacity in a single individual, end quote. So there was actually so such discord and of disunion and the fear of that happening that it exceeded the apprehension of treachery or incapacity in a single individual. As in, a single individual could not even handle all of the actual issues at this time that the country had. I think that's the way he's trying to put it. And it's also the best, the most self-government representative system that at this time they could probably find. And that's why they went ahead with having representatives that then voted on a proposed constitution and, you know, wrote down all of the different articles that, and provisions that they wanted. So next, Madison, he discusses at length the many objections alleged against the proposed constitution. So this is going to be long. I got like 
five different excerpts. It's 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 a very long paragraph. So just uh, bear with me here. He says this one, and he's when he says this one or another, he's referring to all the objectors because there's literally, from what it sounds like, it seems like there's a lot of them, and there's a lot of different opinions. And then the reason for him citing, and I wasn't going to cite all this, but I think it's important for the um, for the exercise of just understanding what the what the Federalist Papers were really written for. It was to answer all of these objections. And if I lay out all these objections first, and then we can go forward from this, and you can understand how each and every one of these objections is actually going to be answered in a comprehensive and coherent manner. So then he goes. So he goes on. Now he starts. He states, this one tells us that the proposed constitution ought to be rejected because it is not a confederation of the states, but a government of over individuals. Another admits that it ought to be a government over individuals to a certain extent, but by no means to the extent proposed. A third does not object to the government over individuals or to the extent proposed, but to the want of a bill of rights. A fourth concurs in the absolute necessity of a Bill of Rights, but contends that it ought to be declaratory, not to the personal rights of the individual of individuals, but of the rights reserved to the states in their political capacity. A fifth is of the opinion that a Bill of Rights of any sort would be superfluous and misplaced, and that the plan would be unexceptionable, but for the fatal power of regulating the times and places of elections." End quote. So, as you can see, everyone seems like they're completely all over the place, and they all have different opinions, and that's the reason that he laid out before that we're going to have a court system, and that's the reason for the court system is so that we can hash it out in court and figure out what is the most Republican principle or the most, the most freedom-minded principle that we can find to fit and be a remedy to all these problems. So then he goes on. An objector in a large state exclaims loudly against the unreasonable equality of representation in the Senate. An objector in a small state is equally loud against the dangerous inequality in the House of Representatives. From this quarter, we are alarmed with the amazing expense from the number of persons who are to administer the new government. From another quarter, and sometimes from the same quarter on another occasion, the cry is that the Congress will be but a shadow of representation and that the government would be less, far less objectionable if the number and the expense were doubled. A patriot in the state that does not import or export discerns insuperable objections against the power of direct taxation, end quote. So these are all different things. Somebody like hates the idea of direct taxation. I think a lot of people hate the idea of direct taxation. Uh, he's talking a little bit about how the bigger states don't like the idea of there being two senators per state because they feel like they don't have as much power, even though they have more of a representation, they have more of a population. And then the smaller states, they like the idea of the Senate, but then they don't like the idea of the House of Reps because the House of Reps is based on population. So they're both fighting small state versus large state. And then, um, what was the other one he mentioned here? Oh, and then he's saying the Congress will be a sh but a shadow of representation and that the government would be far less objectionable if the number of, and the and the expense were doubled. So he's saying, somebody else is saying that the, the size of government should be doubled the amount of representatives and senators. So it's just everyone's all over the place here. So next what he has. He states, and I quote, the patriotic... Uh, adversary in a state of great exports and imports is not less dissatisfied that the whole burden of taxes may be thrown on consumption. This pol politician discovers in the constitution a direct and irresistible, uh, 
tendency of monarchy that is equally sure it will end in aristocracy, another is puzzled by to say which of these shapes it will ultimately assume, but sees clearly it must be one or other of them, whilst a fourth is not wanting who with no less confidence affirms that the Constitution is so far from having a bias towards either of these dangers that the weight on the, that side will not be sufficient to keep it upright and firm against its opposite propensities. With another class of adversaries to the Constitution, the language is that the legislative, executive, and judiciary departments are intermixed in such a manner as to contradict all the ideas of a regular government and all the requisite precautions in favor of liberty, end quote. So you have a bunch of different people that think the government's going to go, one thinks it's going to be an oligarchy, aristocracy, one thinks it's going to be a monarchy, um, some say that the government doesn't, what was the other one, all the, the legislative branch, the executive and the judiciary, all are too intermixed and commingling too much to in a manner to contradict all the ideas as in one, you know, one uh, specific branch of government can really impact the other one or so, something of that nature, what they're referring to. So then he goes on, and I quote, In the eyes of one, of one, the junction of the Senate with the President is in the responsible function of appointing two offices uh, instead of vesting this executive power in the executive alone is the vicious part of the organization to another, the exclusion of the House of Representatives, whose numbers alone could be a due security against corruption and partiality, and the exercise of such a power is equally obnoxious with another, the admission of the President into any share of a power whichever must uh, be a dangerous engine in the hands of the executive magistrate is an unpardonable violation of the maxims of Republican jealousy. No part of the arrangement, according to some, is more admissible when the trial of impeachments by the Senate, which is alternatively or alternately, alternately a member both of the legislative and executive departments when this power so evidently belonged to the judiciary department. End quote. So, some are saying that when it comes to the appointment of offices such as a Supreme Court justice, it, that's vested in the nomination from the president, and then the appointment comes from the Senate, has to vote to confirm and appoint. That people are saying, now we want the House of Representatives involved because they have such so many numbers that it would be a security against corruption. And then when they go to actually, um, when they go to challenge that statement, they say, well, the Senate is going to be a person that's in there for six years, six year term. They're going to be a, of like the senior class, meaning they've, they've done this before they're experienced as a politician. They'll understand the procedure of doing so. And, um, if it was someone in the House of Reps, they think that they would be corrupted because they only have two-year terms and they wouldn't feel set in their terms. They'd be worried about winning their next term and they would vote on the whim of that alone. And they also would not really know the procedures because they've only been doing two-year terms. That was another reason for that. They go on to explain all of this. Um, and then he also says the executive magistrate themselves, and some people think the executive magistrate by themselves should be able to pick the entire judiciary, which is absurd, because then you have really the power of one branch is the power of two branches. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different stuff in here that they go on with. So, so next, and this is the very last one that he starts talking about, he states, and I quote, oh, and he's quoting other people, he says, we concur fully, uh, reply others, 
in the objection to this part of the plan, but we can never agree that a reference of impeachment to the, to the judiciary authority would be an amendment of the error. Our principal dislike to the organization arises from the extensive powers already lodged in that department. Even among the zealous patrons of a council of state, the most irreconcilable uh, variance is discovered concerning the mode in which it ought to be constituted. The demand of one gentleman is that the council should co consist of a small number to be appointed by the most numerous branch of the legislature. Another would prefer a large number and considers it to be a fundamental as a fundamental condition that the appointment should be made by the president himself. End quote. So here they're still fighting over uh, Supreme Court people or, or judiciary department. Oh, no, the, you know what they're fighting over? They're fighting over impeachments of the judiciary authority. And some are saying that it should be the executive that deals with it. And then some are saying it should be a small council of people. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, but yeah, so I don't even think they say anything about impeachments of the president, though. That's actually kind of interesting. Uh, but we can never agree that the reference of impeachments to the, to the judiciary authority would be an amendment of the error. Our principal dislike of the organization arises from the extensive powers already lodged in that department. Yeah, I guess, or maybe the fact that when impeachment, when an impeachment actually takes place, and this is why this current impeachment of Donald Trump is a complete sham impeachment, because you cannot impeach to begin with in the Constitution. Once somebody is impeached, it says then they have to leave office, or they are taken out from office. They're no longer holding the position of the presidency. In this case, now Donald Trump is no longer holding the position of the presidency anyway. So this impeachment to begin with is one. That's one reason it's unconstitutional. Another reason is constitutionally the Supreme Court um, Chief Justice has to actually be there during the the impe I guess you would call the impeachment trial in the Senate. So the, they vote on the articles of impeachment in the House of Reps. I think you only need half or a majority there, and then when you get to the Senate, you need a much higher percentage. You need, like, two-thirds of the Senate to go through with it, so you would need 67. Um, you'd need 67 senators, so you would need something like 16 or 17 Republicans to vote uh, for impeachment as well with all the Democrats. But the, the point of the fact of the matter is that Chief Justice Roberts said he knows himself this is unconstitutional because the, the man is no longer in office. So he says, well, I'm not going to preside over that. I'm not going to show up. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not showing up. Thus, it is a complete fake and like phony uh, trial that they're holding right now or they will be holding in the future. I think they said something like, I want to say they said something like February 9th, but I'm not sure. It's pretty much a waste. And then they talk about uniting people. It's just not uniting when you're going to go ahead and you're going to uh, impeach the guy that's no longer the president. It just doesn't make any sense. It's almost like flipping a, a the bird to all Republican voters. That's the point of this. So then Madison goes on. He says, these objections will be formidably answered throughout the papers in discussion of the powers of the three branches. And that's what this is. This is all kind of setting the stage for that. Once you hit Federalist number 51 from there on out, then you do all three of the branches. So he concludes from, from everything he said beforehand. He states, and I quote, It is a matter both of wonder and regret that those who raise so many objections against the new Constitution should never call to mind the defects of what of that which 
is to be exchanged for it. It is not necessary that the former should be perfect. It is sufficient that the latter is more imperfect. End quote. So he's saying the latter is in the Articles of Confederation is much more imperfect than the Constitution, even though the Constitution is not perfect. So Madison describes the most objections, that most objections to the proposed Constitution are even more evident in the Articles of Confederation with more severe um, consequences. So he goes on, he states, and I quote, No man would refuse to give brass for silver or gold because the latter had some alloy in it. No man would refuse to quit a shattered and tottering habitation for a firm and commodious building because the latter had not a porch to it. Or because some of the rooms might be a little larger or smaller or the ceilings a little higher or lower than his fancy would have planned them. End quote. So what he's saying, he's comparing, he's using the analogy here. He's saying no, no man would give brass for gold or silver because the idea that that brass has alloy in it. And I think, because I think, I think even silver and gold both have some sort of form of alloy. I'm not 100% sure, but, and then he also, and this is the better analogy he uses. Would I rather have a shattered, tottering, destroyed home or a commodious building? And this commodious building, it's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. You know, it doesn't have a porch on it and maybe some of the rooms are a little smaller than to than my liking and maybe you know the ceilings are a little higher a little lower than I would have liked but would I rather have the destroyed decimated home that's shattered and tottering or the home that's a legitimate house and at least it's functional but it may have a few small imperfections so then he goes on um Oh, he tried, you know what he does now? He establishes an argument that the Constitution may not be perfect, but the Articles of Confederation and the repercussions therein are much more of a threat. So that's what he's going to do now. He states, and I quote, The present Congress can make requisitions to any amount they please, and the states are constitutionally bound to furnish them. They can emit bills of credit as long as they pay for the paper. They can borrow both abroad and at home as long as a shilling will be lent. Is an indefinite power to raise troops dangerous? The Confederation gives to Congress that power also, and they have be already begun to make use of it. Is it pro improper and unsafe to intermix the different powers of governments in the same body of men? Congress is a single body of men, are the sole depository of all the federal powers. End quote. So he's saying the single body of men is the federal depository to all the all the powers. And then he's talking about the, you know, pretty much he's saying the Congress. It's just this, like I said, I think it's something like 80 people at that time. They have the power over the entire federal government, uh, the entire country, really, if, if you had to put it that way. And they have the power to emit bills of credit as long as they, they will pay for the paper. They have the power to indefinite power of raising troops where there's no limit on it and and there's no type of check on the power whereas now currently there is a check on the power the executive branch has the power to raise the troops but really the person that holds the purse and the money is the actually really the ones that raise the troops are technically the legislative branch but the executive executive branch is more the commander-in-chief of the troops so at least that power is kind of split 
where there gi there gives it a safeguard against tyranny, whereas here there is no power that's split at all. So in Madison, he continues, he states, and I quote, it is particularly dangerous to give the keys of the treasury and the command of the army into the same hands. The Confederation places them both in the hands of the Congress. Is a Bill of Rights essential to liberty? The Confederation has no Bill of Rights. Is it an objection against the new Constitution that it empowers the Senate with the concurrence of the executive to make treaties which are to the laws of the land, to be the laws of the land? The existing Congress, without any such control, can make treaties which they themselves have declared and most of the states have recognized to be the supreme law of the land. Is the importation of slaves permitted by the new Constitution for 20 years? By the old, it is permitted forever. End quote. So the new Constitution they had written in there i want to say around 1812 they had to stop the slave trade completely and if they did then i think they had to pay like an extra tax to the point where it wasn't even worthwhile for them and that was the point it was a deterrent to um to buying slaves so we're importing them now the old one there's no there's no provision in there for that that was actually something that was heavily contested and he, he writes a paper it's it's in the near future and i'll mention it when it comes up it was a heavy point of contention a lot more than most people probably think because I, Madison, I think, was a slave owner. But there's there's different degrees of uh, slave owners at this time. There were ones that really treated their slaves terribly. And then there was ones that, upon their death, they freed them and they had a very nice uh, living situation for them at the time. Yeah, don't get me wrong, they're slaves. But they, they kept them comfortable. They fed them well. They clothed them well. They, they gave them shelter. And then there's people like Alexander Hamilton that was against the slave trade and was against slavery in its entirety and didn't own slaves. So, uh, yeah, so Madison next, what he does, he characterizes the current Congress. He states, and I quote, I shall be told that however dangerous the mixture of powers may be in theory, it is rendered harmless by the dependence of Congress on the state for the means of carrying them into practice. That however large the mass of powers may be, it is in fact a lifeless mass. Then say I, in the first place, that the Confederation is chargeable with the still greater folly of declaring certain powers in the federal government to be absolutely necessary and at the same time rendering them absolutely nugatory, end quote. So, his dissenters are saying, what are you even worried about? You know, the, the Constitution or the, the Articles of Confederation give the power to Congress to try to get the states to do this, and it's up to the states' discretion to actually carry out the acts of the of the Congress assembled at, the, at this time. And he goes, okay, but then it also, the Confederation's also charged with all these, declaring all this, this great folly of uh, powers that are considered by the federal government standards as absolutely necessary, but at the same time they're rendering them as as nugatory as in as in with no power, with no meaning, trivial, pretty much trivializing all of these powers, but but also calling them absolutely necessary. So he's like that objection pretty much to me is meaningless. It doesn't it's nothing to me. And he has a point. He does. So he's, he's like, okay, well, so the people themselves don't have powers, but they, they do, but they don't. It's And then there's no court system that we can hash it out and actually figure out what the, the federal government is there for. So then it's kind of just we're at a standstill and we're at a very inefficient and ineffective system. 
So then he goes on, he states, and I quote, and in the next place that if the union is to continue and no better government be substituted, effective powers must either be granted to or assumed by the existing Congress in either of which events the contrast just stated will hold good. But this is not at all out of the out of this lifeless mass has already grown an excrescent power which tends to realize all the dangers that can be apprehended from a defective construction of the supreme government of the union it is now no longer a point of speculation and hope that the western territory is a mine of vast wealth to the united states end quote so he's talking about the western territories i don't really know why he even really mentions that it doesn't really make much sense to me but he said the problem is, is so far right now, the way that the government has been moving, they have an actual excrescent power and they have been, and, and this is something they're calling as a lifeless mass, but he's pretty much saying we have, they have all these powers and no one's realizing the danger of these powers. And it seems like they're taking more and more away from the states and the individual citizen because their powers are so limitless, even though we are calling it nugatory in essence, because the states can just not not comply with what's going on and that will actually that would end up in war and i think that's what he's trying to kind of allude to but at the same time he he's saying that we have really a federal government that has no constitutional authority carrying out authority and usurping their power and i think he actually mentions this in the next quote I think he does. He states, and I quote, We may calculate, therefore, that a rich and fertile country of an area equal to the in inhabited extent of the United States will soon become a national stock. Congress have assumed the administration of this stock. They have begun to render it productive. Congress have undertaken to do more. They have proceeded to form new governments or new states to erect temporary governments to appoint officers for them and to prescribe the conditions of which such states shall be admitted into the confederacy all this has been done and done without the least color of constitutional authority end quote and this is something that uh, i remember he was he was mentioning this when he was mentioning other republics or it was i know it wasn't madison it was uh, it was hamilton and he was saying that no matter what the means will be produced to to reach the ends that need to be met in order to preserve the country. So no matter what happens, if we need to if we're in a situation where we need to preserve the country, that takes ultimate precedent precedent over everything. That is priority number one, preserving the country. And if the federal government doesn't have the actual power written down, they're gonna usurp their power every single time because the preservation of the country is paramount in comparison to everything else. And he says that's really what the problem is here is we, they have no constitutional authority, but they've continued to usurp their power and do what they have to do, which is why. We, and, and then that blurries the lines and then it creates a gray area where they can consistently violate their power or their trust and they can just usurp their power all the time they can just overstep their boundaries constantly and you kind of do the what about ism you say well they did it on this on this occasion and they did it on this occasion they did it here but why can they do it then and then they can't do it here you know so so that's the point in having a set constitution and the court system once again how important and how underrated the uh the court system is i cannot i cannot say it enough so he concludes 
and I quote, a great and independent fund of revenue is passing into the hands of a single body of men who can raise troops to an indefinite number and appropriate money to their support for an indefinite period of time. So you pretty much have all of the powers of the three branches encompassed into one body, and that's that's what he, the problem is that he's alluding to. And then I got like two more quotes left. He states next, and I quote, And yet there are men who have not only been silent spectators of this prospect, but who are advocates for the system which exhibits it, and at the same time urge against the new system the objections which he, we have heard would they not act with more consistency in urging the establishment of the latter as no less necessary to guard the union against the future powers and resources of a body constructed like the existing Congress than to save it from the dangers threatened by the present impotency of that assembly. So he's just saying we have men that, that sit here and they don't realize what the heck's going on and they've become silent to the prospect of all of this, um, the usurpations, and, but they're also advocates for the system. It's it's weird because they're, they're talking about we have people that are objectors to the proposed constitution, and but they're also advocates for us. And, and the reason that they are against the constitution is they think it gives the government too much power, but then they're also advocates for this exact same system, which exhibits much more power and much more gray area with government where there's not consistent standards and... Um, specificities on what they're supposed to do and but they're somehow it's pretty much like you're saying they're hypocritical but they're somehow they're a fan it's almost like it's like it's like modern day when, when politics comes into everything politics is truly one of the most tribal things out there where people actually lose their sense of reality and they do the thing where they point at one side and they say look they got away with that but then their side's doing the exact same thing and, and they don't understand, or for example, uh, i.e. all of the riots that happened this entire summer, and then suddenly when there's a riot at the Capitol building, everyone points their finger and yells white supremacy, and but but the conservatives go and condemn, um, condemn pretty much all, I'm not going to say all, all the time, but I'm going to say everything that's happened over this last year, all political violence that's happened over this past year has been completely condemned by the conservative side, but then the liberal side sits there and points and goes, they're not condemning it after they condemned it millions of times at this point. they have to. It's like every single time a conservative goes to speak, they have to say, before I want to say anything, I just want to condemn all political violence. Okay, can we get to the get to the story? And I'm also not racist, by the way. And then they have to go ahead and they have to talk about uh, condemning it over and over again to somehow vindicate themselves from any wrongdoing. And, and the liberal side doesn't understand all of the things that happened this entire summer and they were bailing people out of prison. It's 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 just, or out of jail, and it is just hypocrisy of of politics. And, and that's what he's alluding to here, is that you have people that they call for a system of low taxation, or they, they call for, oh, we're going to tax the rich, and then they turn around and say, oh, no, now we're t uh, going to tax the middle class as soon as they get elected within a couple weeks. It's that inconsistency and the the lack of circumspection to see all of the things that you're doing and just looking at what the other side is doing the entire time. So, very last quote he states, I mean not by anything here said to throw censure on the measures which have been pursued by Congress. I am sensible 
they could not have done otherwise. The public interest, the necessity of the case imposed upon them, the task of overleaping their constitutional limits, but is not the fact an alarming proof of the danger resulting from the from a government which does not possess regular powers commensurate to its uh, objects. A dissolution or usurpation is the dreadful dilemma to which it is continually exposed, end quote. So this is this is a really good way to wrap it up. He's saying, hey, listen, I don't blame the guys that are in Congress for doing what they had to do. They did what they had to do because at the time, our Articles of Confederation was not was not commensurate to the objects of our government. So the means did not reach the ends, the needed and much necessary ends that were really imperative to the existence of the country. So they had to overstep their constitutional limits. And he understands, he goes, well, it is what it is. You had to do what you had to do to for the self-preservation of the country. So that really ends this one. Um, next will be Federalist number 39. Yeah, 39. And that one's called the conformity of the plan to Republican principles. So I'm hoping it's a little bit of a change up. I'm, I don't want to get into um, doing the same thing over and over again. And this one was a little bit of a switch up. Not a big fan of this one. I don't know. Uh, but I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. Please make sure you check out all the current event podcasts. Every single week, usually I have a current event. I have a weekend special that comes out on Saturdays, late Saturday night into early Sunday morning, as well as a Thursday morning podcast, usually Thursday morning into Thursday, maybe in the day. Those are both current event podcasts, and you'll notice because they have nothing to do with the Federalist Federalist papers. It doesn't say Federalist number or whatever. It just just has a general uh, title to it, so check those out please like share subscribe let people know about the podcast especially those current events just to try to keep everyone up to date on what's going on in our current political uh, system here so thank you for tuning in i will see everyone on friday